follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What is the cloud? It's not just pie in the sky anymore. SAP presents In the Cloud with Game Changers with your host, Bonnie D. Graham. Are you in the cloud yet? If you are, do you know how to maximize its potential? Get ready for an hour of innovations and innovators who will explain how they are using the cloud. Find out how to make it work for you or work more effectively for you. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. And our key phrase for today is HR globalization. It's an inevitable challenge as your company's marketplace changes and new opportunities arise, possibly in maturing countries. That's a key. But are you and your employees ready to venture out of your home base comfort zone? Uh huh. Home base headquarters. You know where you are to do business among other cultures around the globe. I have three experts who have a lot to say today on this topic. We're going to be meeting Emily Jasper in She Says, quote, Globalization is centralizing how we do business, bringing us to a new universal model. Comparative advantage, and that's a key we'll talk to her about. Comparative advantage will go to those with emphasis on great talent and innovation, not on geographic boundaries. We'll talk to Emily in a moment. China Gorman is with us today. She says... Globalization is first about mindset and second about customers. There's another key phrase we're going to explore. Absent both of these, organizations won't be global. They'll be local with global aspirations. I think that should go on a banner over somebody's desk. And they won't be competitive, which is even worse. And we're going to be joined by Dr. Stephen Hunt. And he says, culture can be used as a convenient excuse for the failure of poorly designed and deployed processes. Those are fighting words. So join us for the next hour for HR globalization, ready or not? And that's the question, ready or not. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to In the Cloud with Game Changers presented by SAP. This is such an important topic today. I hope you'll listen no matter what size your company is or even if you don't have a company yet and you're thinking the world is a global marketplace, period. We have a lot to say. So, Let's hear from a hello from all of my guests. Emily Jasper is currently, oh, I love this, a secret agent and a writer with the star <laughs> Conspiracy. Never heard of a company named Conspiracy except in the movies. It's a full-service marketing agency for company, companies in specialized market segments. Emily is a two-time recipient of Forbes Woman's Top 100 Websites for Women. Very impressed, Emily. She blogs at From the Gen Y Perspective, and that tells you about her age, as well as Forbes Online. Say hello, Emily. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me. Can't wait to get take a deep dive into your quote when we get back to you in just a minute. And we're joined by China Gorman. She's the CEO of the CMG Group. She has held strategic business leadership roles in the talent management consulting space for over two decades. She's a sought-after speaker and a thought leader in the broad human resources marketplace, which is why she's here. Welcome, China Gorman. How are you today? 
I'm great, and it's super to be with you. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I want to ask you about your first name, too, when we get back to you. Dr. Stephen T. Hunt, he's letting me call him Steve. He's already been on the show before. Thrilled to have you back. Steve is the Principal Director of Business Execution Practices at SuccessFactors, the leading software-as-a-service, also known as SaaS, provider of business execution technology to maximize workforce engagement and productivity. He wrote the book Hiring Success and has published articles in Talent Management, TLNT.com, HCI, and and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome back, Steve Hunt. How are you today? Really good. Great to be on the show, Bonnie. Thank you very much. Glad to have you back. And let's go back into our opening monologue and start digging apart these quotes. So, Emily, you say globalization is centralizing how we do business, bringing us to a new universal model. How universal is this? Is it the fact that everybody's going to be global or that universe means the globe? Help me decipher this. Well, so essentially I'm starting to see when you talk about global organizations, there's almost a separate standard. Uh, You speak on this global perspective versus the local perspective, and Mm -hmm. when you take that and separate it out, you're almost seeing essentially its own independent, I don't know if you want to call it a nation or a forum, but a set of business standards that are starting to apply to everyone. And that centralized process is what I'm seeing, you know, we're calling it globalization now, but like so many things, it'll just become the way you do business in the future. Good point, and we're going to have predictions at the end of the show, and I think that's one of the things we'll bring up. Now, let's go to the second part of your quote, Emily, comparative advantage. And I asked you before the show, did you mean competitive? And you said, no, it's comparative advantage. We'll go to those companies with an emphasis on great talent and innovation, not on geographic boundaries. So take me through this. What is comparative advantage? So for a lot of uh, economists out there, you think about comparative advantage as an approach where one country might specialize in the production of wine, well, they should focus their resources on producing that wine as opposed to spreading their resources into producing all kinds of other things that they're just not that great at. And so you can transition that into a competitive advantage because it is going to be about the talent and innovation, and at some point the geographic home base is not going to be the same. Now, wine... Wine may still be a limited geography, but, mm-hmm. you know, when you start talking about other industries, it is going to be maybe geographic agnostic. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to that term later. Thank you, Emily Jasper. Okay. I have to ask. You're a secret agent. Tell me quickly. What does that mean? <laughs> we work with a lot of different clients and a lot of different projects, but the beauty is, is it's all a secret. Okay, I wonder if you need to get permission from M, from M or M three or whatever, whoever, wherever Judy Dench is to be on the show today. But I'm glad, I'm glad you got whatever permission it was. We won't tell. China Gorman, let's talk to you about your quote. Globalization is first about mindset, second about customers. That's an interesting perspective. Tell me a little more, please. Well, I think that, um, you know, the first thing is that regardless of the size of your organization, um, Every organization operates within a global environment, even if they don't know it. Even if you're a small organization in the Midwest in the United States, what happens in other markets globally from a financial policy perspective, from a regulatory perspective, from a demographic perspective, at the end of the day, impacts your business 
how you have access to talent, and what your growth opportunities could be. Uh, and so until you, until business leaders, and in particular, are take, take a global as opposed to a local, regional, or national mindset and start thinking about their business in global terms, those opportunities and advantages won't come to them. So that's number one. First, you have to have that mm-hmm. global sort of mindset. Okay. Uh, number two, regardless of the size of your organization and, and its location, if you want your business to grow today, you have to be looking at emerging markets, and those are all outside the United States. Uh, we began to look outside the United States for talent as a salary arbitrage. Right, that's what offshoring was primarily about. Labor mm-hmm. in certain functions was cheaper in other parts of the world. It's an arbitrage ex- exercise. And right. as those jobs took hold, and for example, you know, in India, call center kinds of things, and wages started to grow, it became less and less about saving money on salary and compensation and became more because that sort of went away as salaries um, as salaries grew and then it became more about talent availability uh and so what happens what happens when um uh when a middle class starts to grow because job middle class jobs are coming is that the middle class creates customers and so that's what we're seeing sort of around the world is where we've where we've sent jobs, primarily it's been North America, where we've sent those jobs from a salary arbitrage perspective, we can't use those locations anymore because of cost of living and wage inflation and those kinds of things. But what we've done in the meantime is create uh, a stronger middle class, which is now customers and driving demand for more and more of our products. So it's a it's a wonderful, actually virtuous cycle if you're on top of it and you have that global mindset. Okay. Talk to me about the difference between a global organization, just briefly, because, oh, we have five, five minutes. We're good. We'll get Steve on. Talk to me about the difference between a global organization and a local organization with global aspirations. What separates the wheat from the chaff there, China? Uh, I think it's the understanding of the, having a global mindset and understanding who and where your customers are and could be. Okay, good to know. We'll come back to that more in the roundtable, which starts after the break. Stephen Hunt, welcome back again, and let's dive into your quote. You say, culture can be used as a convenient excuse for the failure of poorly designed and deployed processes. I know you're talking about HR globalization. That's the topic today. Talk to me about that. Who's who's blaming it on culture? They're blaming it on local culture? How does that excuse Mindset work. You know, I, I would start by saying that my role within Success Factors is working often with very large global companies, you know, like Siemens, BP, Chevron, Coca-Cola, Nissan, Bechtel. So companies that very much are trying to capture on Emily's concept of centralization. They're trying to centralize their talent management HR functions because they have a globally dispersed labor force, as China was commenting, that has to support a globally dispersed market. So we have people all over the world that have to serve people all over the world, and these people are often not co-located in the same markets, and they're saying, well, how can we do this through a centralized function? And so one of the really big issues that comes up with these companies is this idea of standardization across the whole organization. How can you create a standardized process so we can compare the type of labor, the skills, 
you know, that we have in India with the type of labor and skills we have in South America so that we can support something going on in Europe. And this issue really requires standardization across different countries. Now, what you find often is sometimes these processes, you know, they'll be struggling with adoption. I think people are sometimes too quick to say, well, that system or process won't work in this culture. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, the real issue is not that the process won't work in the culture, it's that the process itself is inherently flawed and really shouldn't work in any culture. So I think sometimes the issue is, and, and very frequently, the, the companies can be too quick to say, we can't do that locally because it doesn't fit our local culture, when in reality it's larger issues. They haven't bought into the process. They haven't bought into the concept. Because when you get into the actual final goal of, you know, increasing workforce productivity, people are far more similar around the world than they are different. Um, in lots of research on this, if you look at what people want from work, what motivates employees, it's, it's respect, it's clear goals, it's effective constructive feedback, it's a sense of, you know, career progression and fair and equitable treatment. That's true the world over. If mm-hmm. you have a process that does that well, often what you find though when it doesn't when people will say this process isn't working, they'll say it's the culture. And in fact, when you dig deeper, no, it's not the culture. It's something about how the process was designed or implemented. Interesting, Steve. Uh, we're almost ready for break, but I wanted to ask you, if a company goes becomes global and they have this issue with blaming it on local culture, well, it isn't going to work because we know they're different than we are in their values, their religion, their economic system, whatever. As you said, they're blame, blame, blame. Okay. At what point in an organization does somebody get that aha moment and say, oh, damn, we better look at home and see that something isn't working right for the whole company? Is that a really tough revelation for a company to accept, Steve? I I think sometimes it is because they'll say something that worked in their home culture because it was just tradition and we've always done it this way, even though it Mm -hmm. wasn't really that effective. And then slowly realizing, oh, just because we've always done it and we're comfortable with it doesn't mean it's the right way to do something, for example, like staffing, performance management, or succession. I think on the other hand, too, you have to be careful, though, often the resistance at the local level is you'll have managers or leaders who basically, I want my own little fiefdom. I want to do things mm-hmm. my way. And so rather, you know, they resist the standardization simply as a way to have more local control and they'll say, oh, your, your stuff doesn't work in our culture, when the reality is I don't want to use it. Not that it doesn't uh-huh. work. I just personally want to have my own little fiefdom. And so really kind of differentiating that I think is one of the real challenges of deploying consistent HR processes around the globe. Thank you, Steve. That's going to take us right up to our first break. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to In the Cloud with Game Changers. Great panel, good conversation. We're going to take this all over the map today, pun intended. HR globalization, what does it mean to your company? Are you big? Are you midsize? Are you small just starting out? This is important information to help you succeed and grow. We'll be right back after the break. Don't even think of touching that mouse. Justin, out. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Think you know SAP? Think again. SAP customers produce over 70% of the world's chocolate, more than 50% of the world's brand name jeans, over 72% of the world's beer, more than 86% of the world's athletic footwear, and over 65% of the world's televisions. Learn more at www.sap.com. Think you know SAP? Think again. SAP customers produce more than 52% of the world's movies, collect tolls for over 1.75 billion road miles traveled each year, and represent 80% of the companies on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. SAP customers fly more than 1.1 billion of the world's passengers, courier over 50% of the world's packages, and manufacture over 77,000 automobiles a day. Learn more at www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are in the cloud with Game Changers, presented by SAP. If you have a question or comment for Bonnie or her guests, send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. You can also tweet your comments to pound sign SAP Radio during the show. Now back to In the Cloud with Game Changers. And here we are in the cloud with my three guests, China Gorman, Emily Jasper, and Steve Hunt. And China, we're going to lead off this roundtable segment with you. You sent me this interesting, uh, not a quote, but a talking point before the show. You say all organizations operate within the context of a global external environment, whether they're customers or local, regional, national, or global. So let's segue from what Steve was talking about in terms of using culture as an excuse that maybe a process is or isn't broken and and the idea of this global external environment. So uh, let's jump in wherever you'd like to jump. Well, I was was taken with what Steve was talking about because culture, when you're talking globalization, of course, culture is, um, culture is enormous. And and I was thinking as he was talking, um, it's, it's, it's important to understand the difference between um, culture snags and change management failed, if you will. And and um, uh, there's a there's a wonderful artist named named Hugh who does some incredible uh, incredible stuff. And his his quote that I love always in this regard is, "It's not what the software does; it's what the user does." And I think that has mm-hmm. um, impact whether we're talking local, national, or global. The change management process certainly is impacted by culture, but and maybe I'll be a little provocative here, but I think Please. as organizations go go global and try to standardize and and across organizations and across um, geographies, the issue certainly can be culture, but more than anything, just like when you introduce something new at home, it's about adoption and it's about change management. Okay. Emily, you want to jump in on this, the concept of change management, and when does a company need to change? How do they find out that something's broken or that it only works at their home base and not when they globalize? Thoughts? Well, I think, you know, just as they do in manufacturing, the people who are doing the job every day, they're often the ones who know when something's broken. But they Mm -hmm. may not always be the ones who are consulted about how to make the changes, what processes to improve, things like that. And so if you are taking, you know, a seat at the corporate office and launching something and then never getting the feedback back, you know, of course it's not always going to work out the way you want it because 
something may be broken along the way, you didn't plan for something, and you're not getting that feedback back. But I think it is very possible to keep that two-way communication open. And if you are going to implement a large system or a new program, new initiative, the communication back and forth is very important for success and adoption. And it's not so much when things are different, it's when things are different and that people feel like they don't have a chance to explain why they're having trouble. Interesting. What does this say about management, Emily? Does management need to change their how their heads are screwed on, if you will, or, or their or their uh, their leadership when a company succeeds globally? Can the original management cope with that in the sense that we need to rethink or regrow or change, retrofit our policies? Is this a tough decision for companies to grapple with? Which I asked before. I think it is tough. Um, I think what we see. As opposed to uh, commands or, you know, orders, this is what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more around, this is an initiative we're launching, we're going to measure it as we go, but we want your ideas. The difference is, is that it's not just ideas that are going to go in a suggestion box and never be read. It's ideas and changes where those people then have the responsibility. You know how it is. You raise your hand, well, you get to be in charge of that. And I think that actually helps global companies produce things like stretch assignments and increase mobility with employees because then more people are invested in the change. And I don't think that's something very difficult for leadership to grapple with. Mm -hmm. I think it just needs to be a purposeful approach. Okay, good. I like that. Purposeful. Yes, that, I think that's what we're talking about across the border. Steve Hunt, uh, you told me and you said a very, very wise statement here. It does not make sense to talk about global HR or talent processes at a general level. Some processes like staffing and compensation are very sensitive to global, global differences, but others, and this goes back to what we were saying before, goal setting, employee development depend more on the nature of the job. How does a company differentiate these? Is it a textbook thing? Steve, or does it take experience over time? I think there's, there's one, there's a lot of research on different things, sort of like what is cultural and what is just more having to do with if you employ people, this process works. Um, I think it also, experience obviously plays a big role. And I think when you look at it, like one of the things that Emily, as she was talking and seeing any feedback from the end users, one of the things I think that's really important when you're looking at that feedback is there is Distinguishing between what is effective is not necessarily comfortable from a change management perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things, as you're rolling systems out, you want to have a clear sense of, look, this is a process. And I, I would give an example of uh, global assignments. Emily mentioned global stretch assignments, which is a, a lot of research showing that if you want to build global leaders, you've got to move them out of their cultures. You've got to move them to other geographic regions. There's just no substitute for that kind of experience. Well, in some cultures, people are very uncomfortable with leaving their hometowns and moving. And, you know, they will very much resist, do I really need to go live in another country if I want to sort of develop, you know, cross-cultural competency? Well, there's a lot of research that says the answer is yes, you do. It doesn't matter where you live. If you want to become a cross-cultural leader, you need to move. And... So overcoming the resistance in some cultures, they may say, we don't do that here. It's like, well, I'm sorry. If you're part of a global company, you're going to have to do that. So I think one of the things when you're going back and looking at processes, starting with a clear sense of saying, is this a process that we're implementing, that there's considerable research that says it does work, it's effective. If it is effective, 
then when people complain about it, they may be uncomfortable and they may be more uncomfortable in certain cultures, and we have to deal with that from a change management, but we're not backing down. Because just because you don't like to do this doesn't mean it's not what we need you to do. And that's sort of the reality of competing in a global environment. So I think that's true for a lot of different um, human resources practices. There are, however, places where, if especially like staffing is a good example, where the, lab- the local labor market, just the way it functions, as well as regulations around hiring and firing, can be radically different from one country to another. So a staffing technique that might make tons of sense in the United States would not work at all in India and vice versa. And that's where just sort of experience and research really plays a big role in saying, What's going to be an area where we really do need to customize a process to a local culture versus what an area that some cultures may resist it, but, hey, it works, doesn't matter where you live, and we're sticking to our guns with it. Okay, interesting. I have a question about outsourcing talent. Let's say a company is based in the U.S., they've got a global market, they want everybody to be on the ground in their home base, but they can still do business. They can distribute their goods or their services. We know the Internet, uh, whatever the distribution method is. But they want a distributed workforce for some special consulting assignments. Does culture come into play there? Anybody want to answer that? Does culture come into play when the home base is there and everybody can sit down and have lunch together and yet they've got some special consultants around the world who are living in other cultures as part of that new globalization that is just a small amount, just dabbling, dipping their toe in the water. Anybody? Well, I think I think that I think that has to do with customers. Um, the reason that you have a, a distributed workforce, generally speaking, is because you want to serve your customers better. It's not just an exercise in cross-cultural awareness that probably doesn't make a lot of financial sense. It has to be about either developing new customers um, or serving the customers that you have so that you can continue to grow the business on the ground in, in many locations. And so I think um, I think keeping the customer in mind and having that as the motivation solves some, you know, solves some of the, the issues that your question brings up. Okay. Yeah, I'm Go ahead, say, Steve. In, China, if I, if I can build on that, I think one of mm-hmm. the things on the other side, and Bonnie, you mentioned it, there's the value of having people local for the customers, but I do think that point you made about co-location in the home mm-hmm. office, Yes. if you put a bunch of people together geographically, they're going to start to kind of build their own communication network and way of doing things, and if your company has a lot of dispersed people around the world, there's a real danger that you're going to start excluding the people that are remote and you start kind of have that classic, you know, corporate versus field, I think that's a real danger in any geographically distributed organization to say, if we co-locate a large number of people, they're going to start kind of isolating themselves from the people out in the field. I think that's almost an invariable thing that just happens. Well, and I that's, think, and I think yeah. what's interesting in that, in that insight is the notion that, uh, that home offices are going to go away as organizations truly, truly become global, you can't, you can't, you can't, um, uh, prefer one market over another, uh, if you're truly going to be global and serve, um, and serve a global, uh, a global customer set. And so this notion, I, you're exact, I am in total agreement. Uh, and it starts, I think, with what, what is a home office? What does that imply? What does that, what kind of behaviors structurally financial and social 
what kind of behaviors of having a, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, you can't see that, but a home office <laughs> kind of, kind of structure. And I think, you know, as organizations get a, a stronger and, and more robust kind of global mindset, these are the kinds of issues that, you know, that, that sit at the foundation of change management um, to go global because you, you start structuring things differently. You put people in different places for different reasons. Um, but it, it's all about customer service and growing your customer base. All right. But, I have a question. Oh, go ahead, uh, go ahead, Emily. We have a minute and a half before break. I'll let you take it. Please go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say that China and Steve are bringing up essentially what we're talking about is a different kind of culture, not just a geographic or national culture, but the company culture. And that yes. leads right into talent management when it gets to engagement, employee mm-hmm. satisfaction. And you've just got exactly. to take a different approach when you've got your talent all over the world. And it, again, has to be a conscious decision where the people who are there in that one location that is considered the headquarters, they can't always be benefiting from having, you know, the person who is there planning the lunches and the uh, newsletters getting distributed there, things like that, and then all the remote employees are kind of left alone. You really have to make a conscious effort to change the way that dynamic works out. Exactly my point. Thank you all for, for taking what I wanted to know. And, yes, that's, that's one of the issues I wanted to cover today. We're at our halfway break. When we come back, let's talk about the fact of appreciating local culture. We've been primarily talking about the rules and the regulations and the policies that apply to wherever your staff are, wherever you find your talent around the world. It is one company, yes. But how? what level do you incorporate, appreciate, show appreciation and respect for the cultures where where your talent is, and where your customers are. Let's talk about that cultural integration into the HR globalization mindset. You're listening to In the Cloud with Game Changers, presented by SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, talking to Emily Jasper, China Gorman, Steve Hunt. We'll be right back after the break. Don't even think of touching that mouse. Justin, out. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Think you know SAP? Think again. SAP customers produce more than 52% of the world's movies, collect tolls for over 1.75 billion road miles traveled each year, and represent 80% of the companies on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. SAP customers fly more than 1.1 billion of the world's passengers, courier over 50% of the world's packages, and manufacture over 77,000 automobiles a day. Learn more at www.sap.com. Think you know SAP? Think again. SAP customers produce over 70% of the world's chocolate, more than 50% of the world's brand name jeans, over 72% of the world's beer, more than 86% of the world's athletic footwear, and over 65% of the world's televisions. Learn more at www.sap.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. are in the cloud with game changers presented by sap if you have a question or comment for bonnie or her guests send an email to bonnie.d.gram 
at sap.com. You can also tweet your comments to pound sign SAP Radio during the show. Now back to In the Cloud with Game Changers. Yes, we certainly are. One of my guests, I think it was China, finally got my my uh, allusion to don't even think of touching that mouse on the break because our <laughs> listeners are, it's not a regular dial. It's not real radio. It's internet radio. Thank you, China, for that. I don't think any guest has commented on that. We've done over 55 <laughs> shows. You you get the mouse, you get the mouse click uh, award for recognition. Thank you. Steve Hunt, we're going to lead off with you. You sent me an interesting point here. Many global, and you're going to build on, on what Emily said, but I want to bring this up. Many global companies have three different workforces, a global, highly mobile one, where local country culture is very much in the background, and regional workforces, relatively immobile, where local cultural norms are much more influential. And I don't see what the third one is here, but why don't you jump in with this, Steve, and let's play with this for a while. I think I meant two different workforces. Yeah, okay. it sort of gets to what Emily was talking about, this idea of trying to have a global culture and being guarding against, as China was saying, you know, too much of a corporate home office culture. Mm-hmm. But when you look at large global companies, so, you know, I, I've seen this striking in the automotive industry. We have very clearly global companies. What you find is often there really are two very distinct workforces. There is the global workforce that tends to be, your senior leadership, um, more sort of professional positions where people are moving all around the world all the time. They're very boundaryless. But then when you get into manufacturing, sometimes services or sales, you get into a very local workforce, which is comprised of people that would never leave their country. It just wouldn't even enter into their, their sort of life concept. They're very, very rooted where they are. You see, probably the most striking example I've seen of this is in Japan where in Japan you have clearly some very global organizations, but even within Japan, they'll have two entirely separate human resource systems, both processes and technology, one for the global workforce, completely different system for the local Japanese workforce. Um, That's partially because there's all sorts of special regulations and laws that apply to the local Japanese workforce, but it's also very much cultural. um, And so when you're looking at human resources in your organization, you know, ideally, I think we'd say, hey, it's all one workforce and we're going to combine it all together. But the reality of it is, in particular in certain countries, it just doesn't work that way. There really is a big distinction between your global workforce and your local regional workforces. And let's talk about how that impacts policy. Steve, you can take this or anybody else. When, For example, I work for SAP, we know that, and we have different workforce rules in different countries and I worked for Nokia years before I came to SAP and there were different rules for certain of the EMEA countries their uh, their work council rules were different their maternity leaves were different and and so you're working as one group you are definitely global you're definitely distributed but when it comes time to vacation or leave everybody seems to have a different rule how do you make a cohesive sense of company culture let's go back to company culture when you've got different rules for different people who would like to jump on that one. Well, I, this is China. I think this is this is the next step for HR, and I'm and I'm just I'm going to say the phrase even though I hate it. This is this is the way that HR gets that seat at the table by ratcheting up their um, their, their their comfort with data, by ratcheting mm-hmm. up their ability to lead and manage change, and to identify where organization pressure points are that requires some new approaches to, to raise adoption, whether we're talking about, you know, vacation policy that changes, you know, from a regulatory perspective even from country to country, 
uh, or we're talking about uh, technology, uh, privacy laws, or 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 any of those kinds of things. What you what you've just described is the next sort of frontier for HR to really step up and begin to make even um, even bigger contributions than they have been from the from really from the top of the organization. And if HR can get that global mindset first and best. They'll be mm-hmm. way out in front and able to help organizations really manage these changes, whether it's the organization culture or moving into more of a uh, appreciative uh, of all cultures from a global perspective. Very interesting. Emily, you want to jump in on this one? Well, I was just thinking to myself, when we talk about global versus local, we all know that many companies have different cultures within their organization, and that can yes. that may even just be within departments even. And I think what we're getting at is there is a fluidity that has to occur when you're looking at implementing initiatives or going through any kind of change management process, and that includes the cultural aspects of perhaps a local team. You know, there are a lot of great things that they may know that could benefit the rest of the company. But there are a lot of other things that could be learned in different other, you know, different offices from different team members that that local office could benefit from too. And it's that fluidity that you need because the more groups are exposed to change, the more nimble they're going to be able to become. And when you have economic markets impacting companies all over the world, you have to be nimble. And I think being open to change is key while you're still allowed to maintain some of those cultural identific- cultural pieces that identify these groups. Well put. Yeah, go ahead, China. Yeah, oh, Steve. Well, I was, oh, I was Steve. just going to say, to build on what Emily was saying, it's not just being exposed to change. It's being out front and managing it brilliantly. Yes. Uh, whether mm-hmm. it's a cultural issue, you know, in your department or whether it's some large-scale, you know, organizational change that, that hits everybody globally. Um, so being comfortable with change happens when you get good at it, when you actually make change happen uh, and, and then have it persist. Steve, jump in there. Yeah, I think one of these things, I think this is going to increasingly become an issue, and it's not just driving change within the organization, it's driving change within societies, is when you have these local differences become hardwired in the forms of rules and regulations. And when you get into workforce, I mean, if you you give an example, like in the United States, there's Fair Labor Standards Act that really limit the ability for a company to say, we expect you to do things using social technology. Because Mm -hmm. if you check your phone when you're out walking around, well, then technically you're at work and technically you should be paid if you're an hourly worker. And it's just a nightmare of of regulations. And what's happening, though, is what you find within companies, that depending on the company culture, some employees, even if the Fair Labor Standards Act applies to them, they don't care. They're like, no, I like using my mobile phone. I like being able to access work things and sort of blending work and life together. That's kind of where the trend's going. So in some companies... The employees don't care even if they apply, but other, in other places, certain employees really will will care. But the problem is that when you're trying to roll out a global process, 
you have to comply to local regulations that sometimes really don't make sense. They're not even what the employees want, given the company culture. You see the same thing with the, um, some of the data privacy acts in Europe, mm-hmm. where from an employee perspective in the company, if it's a good company and they're trusting the stuff you know, the, of the data, they're like, yeah, I don't mind sharing this data. It would help me with my career if people had more access into who I was and could sort of look at me globally. But because of these regulations that were done locally, the companies can't do it, even though the employees want it and the companies want it. And so I think as we're trying to have more truly global organizations, HR partnering with the business to really stand up to some of these regulations locally that say, you know, this just doesn't make sense given the way the world of work, <clears throat> the way the world of work is changing, which is driving change because I think traditionally a lot of people in the HR processes have been afraid of challenging regulations, even when they don't make sense. Granted, it's not fun and it's hard, but it's, it gets to a certain point. It really starts to damage the business if you can't manage the workforce the way it needs and wants to be managed. Interesting point. I want to bring up something you alluded to, Steve, that's on my mind. Work-life balance when you have a global workforce. When you're you're in location X and you've got meetings with people 3,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 miles away in a completely different time zone, maybe the next day, maybe the day before, trying to keep sanity, tell people you have to balance it, you have to get your sleep, you have to have family time, but I really need you on that call at midnight tonight because that's when we're going to get with the supplier or the customer or the prospect or your colleagues or a new consultant. So how do we do that? How do we keep sanity from an HR, shall we say, an HR oversight level, meaning somebody has to be minding the welfare of the people? Uh, Steve, you have any insight on that or anybody else? Well, I would, I would start by saying it's not work-life balance. It's work-life integration. Um, thank, you. What, thank you. you very, know, thank you very much. I, that work-life balance thing drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. it, it's the blending, and I think it is a trade-off. So, I mean, if I just use a personal example, <clears throat> one of the things I love about my job, I get to do all kinds of fascinating, interesting work, and I get to live in Portland, Oregon. And I work with companies. I remember I had one team I was working with. One person was in India. One person was in Germany. And here I am on the West Coast of the United States. There was no time convenient for all three of us to meet. (laughs) And yet it was a fascinating project. So you just sort of do, you know, you do trade-offs all the time. It's just having sort of that global mindset. I think that's part of it. To say if you want the benefits of participating in a global economy, you have to find a way to manage it. And I think the it goes back to the traditional mindset of I work, you know, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then I don't work. That's kind of fading away. I mean, I think you can blend. Yeah. You still need the balance. And there's still people that want that. But I think people that embrace a global economy, if you want to compete globally, you've got to live globally. It's just the reality of it. Right. We, we need I a bumper think, sticker. We need a bumper yeah. sticker, Steve. You got. You want to work globally? You got to, yes, go ahead. I, I think this is. Um, this is certainly a cultural issue, but I think at its heart, it's a leadership issue. And, uh-huh. and it relates then back to the culture of the organization. And if, in fact, you have an organization leadership that is focused on having employees be able to integrate their work into their life in ways that are appropriate for them that still enable employees mm-hmm. to meet their business goals and to meet the goals of the customer, uh, and leadership walks that talk, 
I think it becomes less and less of an issue, particularly in a global organization. And Steve's story is exactly right. If you've got people, you know, in, in Asia, uh, South America, and the West Coast of the United States, there will never be a time when everybody's up at the same time purposely. Uh, and so this, this feels to me like a leadership from the top walk the talk issue. And I think it's also, uh, if I could use an old-fashioned word, an indoctrination issue for people entering a workforce where they haven't been part of something like that before, where families need to understand. Am I right? Families and, and friends need, what do you mean you're working at midnight? What do you mean you're working at 3 a.m.? It becomes a little bigger than just the one desk, the one mouse, the one app, whatever, the person who is the doing it. It becomes an issue of their family culture, their friend culture, where they have to say, I am working globally now. I think there's a, a bigger issue, a very personal issue, actually. You know what? We have a minute to go. I have a comment here from Greg Chase, who is one of our, well, we have many tweeters today. Greg, Malcolm, Emily, you're tweeting while you're on the show. I appreciate that. Greg has a correction for me. He said, some of us have moved past the mouse. Uh, China, you'll appreciate this. He <laughs> says, I should say, don't you dare switch that app. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to do that when we when we go out. I'm going to say, don't you dare switch that app. You're listening to us on Voice America. Yes, you are. So we're going to take our last break. We're going to come back with the crystal ball segment. This is one of my favorites because I'm going to ask my three very vocal and very smart guests to look ahead as far as five years from today to 2017 and tell me what HR globalization will look like. Somebody alluded to this in their opening statement that we might not even be discussing it because it just will be one of those axioms. It will be the truth for all companies. But look ahead to whether we'll even be talking about this in five years. Crystal Ball coming up. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to In the Cloud with Game Changers. We'll be right back. Greg, keep that mouse. Keep that app. Just keep it, damn it. Go ahead. (laughs) Justin, out. (laughs) The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Think you know SAP? Think again. SAP customers produce over 70% of the world's chocolate, more than 50% of the world's brand name jeans, over 72% of the world's beer, more than 86% of the world's athletic footwear, and over 65% of the world's televisions. Learn more at www.sap.com. Think you know SAP? Think again. SAP customers produce more than 52% of the world's movies, collect tolls for over 1.75 billion road miles traveled each year, and represent 80% of the companies on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. SAP customers fly more than 1.1 billion of the world's passengers, courier over 50% of the world's packages, and manufacture over 77,000 automobiles a day. Learn more at www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are in the cloud with Game Changers, presented by SAP. If you have a question or comment for Bonnie or her guests, send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. You can also tweet your comments to pound sign SAP Radio during the show. Now back to In the Cloud with Game Changers. Yes, and we're 
sticking with our app, and that's where we're staying. Welcome back. We're going to go to the crystal ball segment. I know my guests have something to say projecting forward. I asked you to look ahead to 2017, but it could be five minutes, five weeks, five months, or ten years if you want. Let's start with Emily Jasper from the Star Conspiracy. Emily, globalization, HR globalization in particular, what will it look like? How many years out can you take us, Emily? I would say five years out. We'll still be on the tip of the iceberg of all the possibilities. I do think, you know, globalization is just going to be the way business is. But as Steve pointed out, regulations and uh, protectionist measures makes that difficult. But from a talent perspective, I think we'll actually start seeing more jobs, even down to the entry level, where you have to have a global perspective. It will be a requirement. You've got to start thinking outside the box. And if the company is not requiring it, the talent is going to be looking for it. Very interesting. Expand that a little bit for me. Uh, a lot can happen in that five years. What workforce is this going to impact, Emily? Is it going to be the older people? Is it, I know we weren't going to talk about diversity, but there must be some internal organizational changes at cultural levels, at generational levels, at gender levels that will embrace this or won't embrace this. Do you see any particular part being resistant or amenable more than the others? I would say the younger generations are probably going to drive it because – They're the Mm -hmm. ones who have already founded schools in India, and they're spending time in Africa, and they already travel to Japan or China to teach English. They're already doing this at the high school and college level. So when you stick them in a job where they don't talk to anyone outside their zip code, you're almost putting your company at a disadvantage because you're removing that global perspective that they already had. So... That younger generation who's already doing all of this, they'll be some of the main drivers to getting that global lens into the way the company's thinking. Thank you very much. And let's turn to China Gorman. Crystal Ball, polish it off and tell me, what do you see, China? Well, I'm going to do two things. So five years out, um, I agree with Emily. It'll be just the way things are. But it'll be the way things are because that's where the customers is. That's where the customers are. <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the growth opportunities are. And so all the things that come with, with talent management are right behind that. But I think we have a bigger hurdle to get over before that five-year view, and that's what happens in our elections in November. Um, I think there are three big things coming up, um, I hope fairly shortly. <laughs> One is the election because – um, the decision that that is made around um, the presidency will determine a lot about how businesses invest going forward and where their jobs are um, and how they how they plan to grow their business. So I think I think the U.S. election in November is huge. I think the second thing is the state of the eurozone um, financial recovery will be very large um, mm-hmm. in determining how things happen in the next five years. And then whether or not China can get on top of its growth and do the right things from a fiscal policy perspective uh, and, and get to the needs of their growing middle class. There are already more people in the Chinese middle class than there are people in the United States today. And so mm. I think those are three big uh, events uh, or dynamics in the global context um, that have a huge impact on what happens for all businesses, regardless of where they are, in five years. Thank you very much. And Steve Hunt from Success Factors, what do you see? How far out can you look, Steve? 
Well, I mean, I think I would look like five years out. I think that one of the things that's happening, and it's all, this is already happening, is just a real shift on these more truly global workers. And, you know, this, this sense like we were talking about work-life balance, we were sort of joking at the break that, you know, already for me, my expectation with work is somebody said, hey, we've got this job for you. It's local. You have to commute one hour each way in a car to get to work. I'd look at them and be like, are you crazy? I'm not going to get in a car every day. That's nuts. You know, that's why we have phones and we have web. And it's, so <laughs> we're right. already seeing this shift to sort of more of a global workforce. I think you're going to see that become more and more dominant. Um, where I get concerned is will this shift also create more a sort of a porous relationship to this local workforce, or are we going to start to see an increasing split between the global workforce that sort of competes in the global labor market, which is, you know, growing more fluid, more adaptable to economic change, and are we going to see a gap with that to local workforces that really get slammed as we see countries' economies swinging wildly one way or the other? And I think that's really an issue, too. You know, Emily commented something about sort of younger generation. I don't really think it's a generational thing, personally, that's going to drive that because, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, even with young, younger people, yes, some people that go to college, there's, pro- there's a lot more global opportunities. But my guess, if you looked in the United States or most countries, the bulk of people that are under 25 probably have not ever left this country. Um, hmm. When you get into educational, like certain people who went to college, yeah, probably a high degree do. But are we doing enough to create a global mindset in our local workforces or at least creating a policy structure that enables porous transfer? So if I'm in that local workforce and I want to get into that global workforce, there's some way for me to acquire the skills, the capabilities to make that transition. Because currently I think of a lot of policies we have and a lot of cultural aspects, not just here, but also it's really heavy to go to like Japan and, and other countries there's this increasing demarcation between am I a global worker or am I a local worker, and I think the economic realities for local workers are going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. You need to be global if you want to have global job stability. Interesting. I have two comments to make. Number one, Greg was kind enough to send me a link to a Fast Company article right on Point China. You'll love this. Strive for work-life integration, not balance. You can Google it. It's fastcompany.com, 1825042. Nobody will remember that. And it says, stop trying to balance the mythical scales so that work and family demands and rewards are exactly even. Instead, take these steps to integrate the two for greater happiness and control. And I'll let you all read that on your own. Thank you. Greg, appreciate that fast link. Second thing, I want to do a bonus question. I need I need about a minute to wrap at the end. A bonus question for all of you. I'll give you 30 seconds. Please stay tight. We'll start with Emily, then China, then Steve. Advice for startups that think they want to go global eventually. Should they plan a global, global recognition HR policy from the get-go in their initial business plan before they go to the VC for financing? Emily, what do you think? I think they need to have a global plan. I think any financial organization will want to know what's your plan. And when it comes to talent, I think you need to talk to people who have already been doing it if you have no experience in that area. Thank you very much. China Gorman, what do you think? Well, before you start to put together global HR policies and programs, you have to think about who your customers are, where they are, and how you're going to attract and serve them. Once you have that plan, you can begin to think about HR programs and policies, and I think Emily's right on the money. Talk to people who've already done it. Great. Good good advice. And Steve Hunt, what do you say? Advice to startups for globalizing. 
Well, I completely agree with Emily in China, and I guess the other thing that I've seen work for companies effectively is go global as early as you can. I mean, don't overextend, mm -hmm. but if you early on say, hey, we can, it may be sense to open up an office in Europe or office in a different country, if you do that, that by itself will start creating the foundation for a global culture. It will also help force you to start being more aware of global differences around how it impacts your policies. So the sooner you can get global employees, the sooner you'll start building the foundation for being a global company. Thank you all for the for the global bonus round. I have a couple of announcements next week here on In the Cloud with Game Changers, August 23rd. We'll be revisiting a very exciting topic, rogue IT or shadow IT. And Greg is one of our panelists who's been tweeting for us, part two. And next Wednesday on Coffee Break with Game Changers, Wednesday 8 Pacific, I'll be hosting a topic, the future of digital marketing, attribution measurement. If you don't know what it is, tune in. We'll tell you. And Wednesday, August 29th, the sweet and sour of getting investors, do's and don'ts of making the deal talking about vc and angels part two if you're a startup looking for some information go to spr.ly slash sap startups we have a great series of global startup forums around the world i know that's redundant and you can learn a lot there <laughs> the event on august 30th is palo alto and i want to say thank you to patricia harris joan sherlock malcolm kimberlin anka Rebel, greg chase and the business channel team and i thank my very special guests China Gorman, thank you so much. Emily Jasper, thank you so much. Steve Hunt, pleasure to have you back. You've all been great. Played beautifully in the sandbox. I appreciate all of the energy and the comments, and I love how you talk to each other. That made my job a lot easier. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Remember, go out and be a game changer for your company, your community, your world. Just do something different. Kick it up and make a change. We'll talk to you next week on Coffee Break with Game Changers next Wednesday. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you again for being part of In the Cloud with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Please join Bonnie D. Graham again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. And be sure to tune in to our other program, Coffee Break with Game Changers, every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, also on the Business Channel. Between shows, visit us at www.sapgamechangersradio.com. <laughs>